welcome to Closing In On Justice, True Crime. This is our first podcast and we welcome all listeners. Today, we're going to talk about the Queen Street Massacre that occurred in Melbourne, Australia in the 1980s. The podcast information has been attained from publicly available news and media reports. A warning to listeners, this podcast contains vivid recollections of true crime and may not be suitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised. This podcast is about the Queen Street Massacre in Melbourne. Frank Vitkovic was born in 1965 and he died on December 8, 1987. He died the same day he perpetrated one of Australia's few mass murders. He was a former law student who had deferred his Melbourne University law degree for a year. Vitkovic lived in a typical weatherboard suburban house. It was at this house police found diaries outlining the deterioration in his thinking. He had a Croatian father and an Italian mother and grew up in a working class suburb of Melbourne, Australia called Preston. According to a neighbourhood friend, Vitkovic was a decent tennis player. He was friendly and good looking. Vitkovic legally obtained a shooter's licence as he had said that he had wanted to go hunting. He also collected the rifle he bought on lay-by on the 21st of October in 1987. On the day he died, he killed eight innocent people. Judith Ann Morris, 19, Julie Faye McBean, 20, Annunziata Nancy Abignoni, 18, Warren David Spencer, 29, Michael Francis Maguire, 38, Mary Ann Jacoba Van Uick, 38, Catherine Mary Dowling, 28, and Rodney Jared Brown, 32. Vitkovic wounded five other victims also on that day. His method for murder was a sawn-off M1 carbine shotgun. Vitkovic had become angry at a former school friend and his anger had escalated to boiling point where on December 8th, 1987, he decided that he would kill his former school friend, Conmar Jealous. He also wanted to take out as many people as possible before ending his own life. He travelled to the University of Melbourne with his murderous intent for another target. However, his intended target was not on campus that day. He arrived at the Melbourne University Union House about 2.30pm and he walked up to the counter to speak to the head receptionist, Mary Cook. In the past, he had gone to Miss Cook with various problems and that afternoon she asked him if something was wrong because he was looking sad. Yes, I have failed three subjects and I have deferred, Vitkovic said. The 22-year-old then went to the Australia Post building located in Queen Street, Melbourne, where his old school friend worked. He entered the building at 4pm carrying a brown paper bag and the hidden sawn-off shotgun. He waited calmly for the lift to the fifth floor where Vitkovic went to the teller's desk and asked for his friend. The teller, Rina Diagenio, walked out of sight to Margellis' desk and told him that he had a visitor. Margellus came to the counter and cheerily greeted Victorvic, to which Victorvic responded by pulling out the gun. 
Margellus responded with, you have to be joking, as Vitkovic pulled the trigger. Thankfully, the gun misfired. His old school friend ducked behind the counter and escaped. Margellus ran and screamed, he's got a gun. As people fled and hid behind desks, Vitkovic started firing shots indiscriminately over the teller's desk. Security camera footage captures an image of Frank Vitkovic in the building during the Queen Street massacre, kneeling on the teller's desk and taking pot shots at victims. The image was later to be published in newspapers and on television, a chilling sight by anyone's standards. Frightened, Margellus and three other co-workers all hid behind a desk near the teller's area. It was at this time Vitkovic jumped the inquiry counter to block their escape. He then started walking around the back of the teller's area to the door on the staff side. Margellus jumped onto the counter in front of Alison Coolsland's desk. Just as Margellus was climbing the counter, Vitkovic fired at him from inside the door leading into the teller's area. The bullet hit and killed 19-year-old Judy Morris, who was standing between Vitkovic and Margellus. According to the newspaper reports, Vitkovic then ran past his first victim and Kathy Woods and Alison Coolsland, who were trapped in the teller's area. He placed his gun on the counter where Margellus had jumped and hoisted himself over to give chase. Co-worker, Milovac, sprinted across the public side of the office and down the stairs. Another co-worker, Rita Vamer, was sitting in her office near the lift foyer when she heard the first shot fired on the fifth floor. She looked out of her door and saw Vitkovic and the gun. She pressed the alarm button in her office at 4.17 and 30 seconds and then hid under her desk. Margellus went through the first door he saw, which led into the women's toilets. He shut himself inside and was to stay there until police arrived, surviving the carnage. Vitkovic had failed in killing his old school friend, so he caught the lift to the 12th floor. John Dirac was standing by his desk when he says he heard the doorbell ring. Other staff said they heard no bell, but did hear banging on the security door. Dirac walked up to the door, looked through the small viewing panel, could see nothing suspicious about Vitkovic, who was standing up straight with his arms pointing down. So Dirac opened the door. It was then Jennifer Ridgway got out of the lift on the 12th floor and started to walk the short distance to the security door leading to the philatelic bureau when she saw Vitkovic, who was standing outside the open door, shoot Dirac. Vitkovic shot Dirac twice more as he lay on the ground. Although seriously wounded, Dirac would survive. Louise Ann Emmett was one of about 20 staff when Vitkovic barged in. She saw several co-members run past her desk and around the corner to hide in a storeroom. Vitkovic started to walk across the office floor towards her desk. She decided to hide under it. At the desk next to her was 18-year-old Annunziata Nancy Abignoni, laying on the floor behind her desk. In front of them was Julie McBean, 20, who was also crouching behind her work desk. As Vitkovic moved slowly towards the three young women, he appeared to be having trouble with his gun. He copped and re-copped it. 
He smashed a window as he got closer and Julie McBean screamed. Vic Vic walked straight towards her and fired at her twice, killing her. He then walked past where Louise Emmett and Nancy Avignoni were taking cover and into a petitioned office just behind them when he discovered David Spencer, 28, hiding under a desk. It was reported later that Spencer was heard to shout, Please don't do this, as Vitkovic shot twice, killing him. Vitkovic left the office and walked back to where Nancy Avignoni was trying to hide from him. He shot her twice from about three metres away. As she repeatedly screamed, Please no, he stood over her and shot her fatally in the head. She was victim number four on the 12th floor. Victivic walked back through the bloodbath on the 12th floor and out the same door that he had come in. As he did so, he saw several staff members who were looking at him from behind a bulletproof glass security door. He fired off a shot, sending them scrambling. He walked across the lift lobby and fired a shot into the glass at point-blank range. He then walked down the fire escape stairs in search of more victims. At 4.27pm, Glenn Schilling got the lift down from the 14th floor and tried to walk out of the building to go home. A uniformed police officer on the ground floor lift foyer told him to get back in the lift and to go back up thinking that it would be safer until the threat was brought under control. Glenn Schilling got out at the 11th floor with another employee. Schilling walked into the 11th floor training room and as he looked out of the window down on Queen Street, he saw police vehicles in the street. He then turned to look behind him and saw Vitkovic coming through the glass doors leading into the 11th floor office. At this time, Schilling dived under a collection of desks in the middle of the training room. Michael Maguire, 38, a father of three, also saw Vitkovic as he walked through the glass doors. Maguire ran into the training room where Schilling was taking cover and hid behind the door in a small alcove. Seeing Maguire, he followed him into the training room and headed straight for the alcove behind the door where Maguire was hiding. Michael Maguire started pleading with Vitkovic, saying, I haven't done anything to you. I won't hurt you. Don't shoot me. Vitkovic fired a single shot and walked out of the room. Moaning in pain but still alive, Maguire was still standing in the alcove behind the door. He was calling for help. Vitkovic was away for about a minute but then returned and pulled the trigger at Maguire where Maguire collapsed to the ground. At this time, Vitkovic turned and walked towards the window to look out over Queen Street. In doing this, he was checking on the impact that his actions may have been having in the CBD. At some point during the massacre, Vitkovic was heard yelling, where are the police? Why don't they come? As Vitkovic reached the area where Glenn Schilling was taking cover, he reloaded the gun and turned back towards Michael Maguire. Vitkovic approached Maguire and said without emotion, I'm going to kill you. And he then bent over and held the weapon against Maguire's head and pulled the trigger. Michael Maguire was the fifth innocent victim to die at the hand of Vitkovic that day. Vitkovic walked out of the training room, taking the time to close the door behind him and started across the open plan office towards the northeast corner of the 11th floor. In this corner of the office, several people were crammed. 
Hiding under desks and behind cupboards as Vikovic walked across the office space, he fired several shots at random. He was also heard to be shouting such things as, You're all scum. Well, who's laughing now? What's the point of life when nobody loves you? I'm going to take you all with me. Vitkovic approached the northeast corner and saw Don McElroy in an exposed position. He raised a gun and shot McElroy in the shoulder, sending McElroy crashing against a floor-to-ceiling window overlooking Coin Street. The window smashed. His next victim was Mary Ann Van Newick, 38, who was hiding under her desk. Victorvic came up to her and said, Not to worry, I'll put you out of your misery. He then shot her in the head at close range. Marianne Van Newick was fatality number six. Rosemarie Spateri was hiding under the desk immediately behind that of Marianne. Crammed under and around the same desk near Frank Carmody, Rod Brown, Erica Johnson and Kathy Dowling. Vitkovic began firing in their general direction. Kathy Dowling became the next fatality when she was shot five times. In media reports, it was reported Don McElroy was lying wounded on the floor and Victorvic shouted at him, You give me a lot of trouble, fat man. He shot him again. However, McElroy was one of the survivors of the massacre. Victorvic continued shooting randomly and Rosemarie Spateri was hit in the head. He then walked around the back of the desk and shot her in the back of the neck, seriously wounding her. He fired again and wounded Frank Carmody. Carmody then heard Vitkovic say, this bastard of a gun is jamming. Bravely, Carmody got up and was about to try to tackle Vitkovic despite being wounded. Vitkovic saw him and fired another shot, this time hitting Carmody in the back. Both Carmody and Rosemarie Spateri survived the bloodbath. Vitkovic walked back to the desk and shot Rod Brown in the back of the head. Rod Brown became victim number eight and the last victim to die on that day at the hand of the gunman. Brown was still alive when the police arrived at the scene, but later died. Another employee, Tony Goyoya, was crouched behind a cabinet door just behind Rod Brown. He saw Vitkovic shoot Brown, but the gunman had his back to Goyoya, and so he took advantage of that and grabbed Vitkovic around the waist. Frank Carmody looked up and saw Goyoya that he had Victorvic in a bear hug, but the gunman's hands were still free. Incredibly, Carmody, with bullet wounds, got up and as Goyoya and Victorvic fell to the ground, Carmody wrestled the gun away from Victorvic and passed it to Emma Nixon. She had rushed to join the fight. Emma then hid the weapon in a refrigerator in the staff kitchen. Another brave act, Don McElroy, even though seriously wounded, managed to sit on Vitkovic, as did co-worker Claire Chalkley. Vitkovic was struggling and managed to lurch himself forward towards the window, broken earlier by McElroy falling against it. Vitkovic got himself halfway through the window, cutting his stomach badly on the jagged glass. He gave another lunge forward, shaking off all but Tony Goyoya, who managed to grip onto Vitkovic's ankles. Vitkovic, being held by the ankles by Goyoya, kicked one last time and broke free from Goyoya's hold, plunging to his death from the 11th floor. Police record the death of Vitkovic being that it occurred at 4.34 and 30 seconds on December 8, 1987.
In 17 short minutes since the alarm was first raised, Frank Vitkovic was dead by his own hand, taking eight innocent lives and injuring five others. In the ensuing police investigation at the house in Preston where Frank Vitkovic lived, police located his diary. This diary provided clues to why Vitkovic walked into the Australia Post building that day in December 1987. Subsequent media reports revealed Detective Senior Sergeant Connemy and his then boss, Detective Sergeant John Hill, took Frank Vitkovic's diary within hours of the massacre after being provided permission to enter his bedroom by the Vitkovic family. They quickly knew the diary would be a key piece of evidence in the unlocking the motive for the massacre. The detectives became aware that Vitkovic's family had become concerned about letting them into his bedroom. Mr Connemy, who is retired from the Victoria Police, said he threw the diary and other documents out of the bedroom window in a couple of bags while Detective Sergeant Hill distracted the Vitkovic family. They later went around to the side of the house and retrieved the documents as evidence. Even though the securing of the evidence on that day was a form of theft, the detectives believed they were doing the right thing and just took it. The diary had been invaluable in unpacking Frank Vickovic's mental state leading up to and on the day of the Queen Street Massacre. In the diary, Frank Vitkovic apologised to his family for his planned actions. Amongst his comments, he wrote, It's time for me to die. Life is just not worth living. The final diary entry, written on the day of the shooting, read, Today I must do it. There is no other way out. The insights provided by the diary entries, Vitkovic penned, revealed a man who was apparently angry and hopeless. The coronial inquiry held in September 1988 revealed that there was chaos during and immediately after the shooting. Apparently, there was uncertainty about which officers were in the lead role for the incident. In reports, according in the media quoting Inspector Adrian Fife, the officer in charge, police acted according to procedure and appropriately in securing the scene and isolating the area. At the coroner's hearing on 4 October 1988, Joe Dixon, the counsel assisting the court, said the police response was satisfactory and no complaints could be made about it. He said that police response was fast and the decision not to send ambulance officers into the building until it was cleared was responsible, noting that no one died because of any delay. He said the police officer who sent people back into the building truly believed that he had advised them to go to the top floor, despite evidence that he did not. The hearing heard that while three of the people sent back in the building had emotional trauma, no person sent back died or was injured. Frank Carmi had worked at the Queen Street Post Office for approximately 18 years when Frank Victorvic entered the building with murderous intent on the 8th of December 1987. That day, Frank Carmody had gone to work like he would on any other day. In subsequent media reports, Frank remarkably expresses empathy for the gunman, saying that Vitkovic had led a sad life. After Frank obtained a copy of Vitkovic's diary, he discovered that Vitkovic would stay at home and watch Rambo-type movies and that he was a bit of a loner. The diary revealed a depressed young man 
who had his dreams of playing competitive tennis dashed due to a knee injury. This was not lost on Frank, who was reported to reflect that as a Christian, at times like this, you lock in on God and you ask for direction. Frank Carmody and Tony Goyoya were later to be awarded the Star of Courage, Australia's second highest bravery decoration. There were many heroes on that faithful day, people who were frightened, wounded, and just going about their daily lives, heroes that we didn't see in the media, like the families that had to pick up the pieces of their trauma and carry on living without their loved ones or with loved ones that were so scarred both physically and emotionally that years of care and love worked to repair in the subsequent years that followed. Nine years after the Queen Street Massacre in 1996, newly elected Australian Prime Minister John Howard worked with the state and territory governments to implement and enact tougher gun regulations in Australia. From mid-1996 to mid-97, any person could take a gun to a local police station and the police would buy back the weapon, paying us fair value. At this time in the history of Australia, most 650,000 weapons were bought back after being handed in at police stations around the country. According to the media reports, the proportion of Australian households that had had at least one gun dropped from 8% from 15% during the buyback. One statistic that is undeniable, in the decade before the buyback, a total of 94 victims were killed in mass shootings. In the decade following the buyback, not a single mass shooting occurred in Australia. The buyback was expensive, however, where around half a billion dollars in compensation was paid to gun owners. In our opinion, this is value for money when you consider the cost of mass shootings. Health economists have determined the value of a life is around $2.5 million, based on the economic value of health care and safety measures such as policing. In this regard alone, the buyback was well worth the investment. This is not to mention those who were injured and the community fear and traumatisation that mass shootings caused the general community members and those who served to protect the community. The trauma of the victims of a mass shooting like the Queen Street Massacre include those charged with first response to such an incident. When Frank Vitkovic leapt to his death from the 11th floor of the Australia Post building in Queen Street, Detective Colin McLaren watched him die. Vitkovic hit the pavement in front of him. His body bounced a metre from the ground as it hit with such force. McLaren was the first police officer there that afternoon and he witnessed as the gunman lay dead on the footpath with rounds of bullets rolling out of his pockets. Speaking for the first time publicly to newspaper reporters on the 20th anniversary of the massacre, he spoke of the horrors he saw that day. He said to the Age newspaper in 2007 that he saw bodies everywhere, with many people dead and the rest injured. He spoke of people still cowering underneath their desks and others clutching each other in the corners of the office. He recalled how none of them could talk while some of them were hysterical. Irene McBean's daughter lost her life that fateful day. She recounted in media reports that she was at home in Glen Waverley at 10pm on December 8, 87, when police came to tell her that her daughter had been shot and killed. Her daughter, 
20-year-old Julie was the eldest of three and was studying accounting at night and was in line for a promotion at Australia Post. Julie McBean had only been working at Australia Post for nine months. Bernard Sharp was preparing dinner when he was alerted by his son Peter that there had been a shooting at Queen Street Australia Post Office building on the CBD. Peter was only 14 years old at the time. He had heard the report of the shooting at the office building where his mum worked, but he thought his mum would be safe as her office was on the 11th floor. His mum was Mary Ann Van Uick, and unfortunately she had been shot and killed that day. Mary Ann Van Uick was just weeks away from reaching 20 years of service at Australia Post, after which she had tended to resign and the family were to move to regional Mildura to live. The Queen Street Massacre was by no means the largest mass killing in contemporary times before it had occurred in Australia. There was the Hope Forest Massacre in 1971, 10 dead. The Whiskey A Go Go nightclub fire, 1973, 15 dead. And the Port Arthur Massacre in 1987, 35 dead. However, the Queen Street Massacre remains etched in the Australian psyche. At the time of this podcast in 2019, it's been over three decades since the Queen Street Massacre, yet the resilience of those who were affected, victims, first responders and family members, including the family of the gunman, is inspiring. Perhaps a good thing, the Queen Street Australia Post Office no longer exists at that site of the tragedy and is now a site of apartments. We hope that this podcast goes towards being a small tribute to those affected by the massacre. The Queen Street Massacre scarred the fabric of the Australian collective consciousness, causing the wider community great fear in the knowledge that we may may not be safe anywhere, not even when behind security doors. However, the better message to take away from that terrible moment is that we walk among heroes, men and women, normal everyday people that when the chips are down, they close in on justice by their very actions for the fallen and the innocent, doing the right thing and looking out for each other. Stay tuned for our future podcasts where we unlock the heroism of some and the terror of others in closing in on justice.